Patricia was the first to stimulate bilaterally this patient. So I entered the office and I saw a patient, a normal patient, walking normally. And oh, I said, uh, he's on levodopa. She said, no, 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 no levodopa. Oh, so you injected apomorphine. She said, no, absolutely no drug. She said, try. So I stopped the stimulators and within a few seconds, two, three seconds, he returned to severe Parkinsonism, unable to walk and totally ekanetic. I switched back uh, on the, the stimulators and immediately normal. All my professional life uh, can be uh, abstract with this uh, patient suddenly cured from Parkinsonism. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome back to Stimulating Brains to the fourth episode today with one of the truly big heroes in modern day deep brain simulation, Pierre Polak from Geneva. I'm really grateful that Paul Krack introduced me to Pierre and he agreed to be interviewed in this show. And I think there are quite a few things we could learn uh, from the conversation I had with Pierre. One may be that it's not always just about the ideas, but also about making ideas happen. And the second thing is in an allegory to a quote from Konrad Lorenz, who said, you know, it may be more beneficial to study one animal for a thousand hours than to study a thousand animals for one hour. So I think Pierre um, made a great contribution by studying patients meticulously and days and nights in Grenoble, the first deep brain simulation patients, and um, explored the whole parameter space of which simulation parameters are the best for these patients. And um, I think that was a big, if not the part of the success of uh, transforming deep brain simulation from an acute effect in the OR to a chronic treatment option for movement disorders patients. So tune in and lean back. My name is Andreas Horn and our guest today is Pierre Polak from Geneva. So thank you so much Pierre for agreeing to take part in this. And usually to break the ice, uh, I try to ask a first question about the non-scientific part of people's lives and about your life I think it's pretty obvious because uh, both Paul Krack and uh, Günther Deutschel told me you're a fantastic piano player and I heard after you retired you have taken piano a bit more seriously even even more than before so um, can you tell, tell us a bit about that but also if you want about your private life or your hobbies or whatever that you did apart from working in our field. When I was a teenager I had a complete uh, academic um, uh, formation in uh, piano and in music. Uh, I got the first prize of piano and uh, chamber music and uh, uh, all the part harmony, uh, contrepoint. Um, I had to choose when I was 18 between a uh, music career or a medical career. And uh, as you know, you, you, I chose the medical career because I had many friends were far better pianists than myself. 
and uh, they did not succeed. Perhaps there are thousands of excellent pianists and musicians, and you know only uh, 50 names. Sure. It's very difficult, and uh, most of them are teachers in the conservatories. So I have no regret uh, at all. I, uh, I never uh, abandoned uh, playing piano, but uh, it was only uh, one hour on Sunday. <laughs> so uh, I was uh, not, not a good pianist during my professional career. I uh, retired uh, by the end of uh, 2015, mm -hmm. and I decided to totally stop uh, science, neuroscience, uh, which was incredible. They told me, oh, you will be unable to stop uh, neuroscience. <laughs> sure. yeah. So I decided, and I think I succeeded. It was very difficult for the first year. But I succeeded, and uh, my uh, first hobby is piano and music. So chamber music with friends. Uh, I have friends in the Orchestre de la Suisse Romande, OSR. It's an excellent uh, orchestra from Geneva. Mm -hmm. And uh, we play uh, music, chamber, chamber music with them. It's a very great pleasure. But... Um, as I'm a little lazy, I don't uh, work a lot, <laughs> my, my piano. So I, I, need, uh, I need challenges. Uh, and uh, there are uh, competitions for amateurs. And the first one and the most famous one was uh, created in Paris. And uh, I participated to, the, to this uh, competition. Its name is Competition for uh, Outstanding Piano Amateurs. So I, I didn't succeed to, to get to the finals, but only the quarterfinal. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I was in the first 10 out of uh, 100 uh, pianists. Uh, but every two years, uh, there will be a, a new uh, competition, but it's not a real competition. The, the name is compet competition, but it's uh, only for music lovers. It's, it's a non-competition competition. competition. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I will continue because um, I made a great progress. And I think that uh, I resume my teenager level now. So, uh, oh, that's good. <laughs> great. Great. Is there? Do you have a recording that we could even put on the website, or you know, that, that to people to hear you play? Uh, would uh, that not be? during the competition, but in uh, my home. Uh, yes, I have uh, recordings, so that, that's to hear that. that's possible. Yeah. That I, I will. I have to hear to these recordings to to know if they are correct or not. <laughs> I can uh, I can send you one. That, that's possible. Great. Uh, I, have, I have a second passion. It's sport. So now, so now uh, from uh, my retirement, I, I am in far better shape than when I, I worked. <laughs> That's great. That sounds like a good decision you made. So I made a lot of cycling uh, with the, all the great uh, Alps uh, passes and uh, like the, wow. the Tour de France competition and uh, also, all winter uh, sports, uh, uh, alpine skiing, Nordic skiing, uh, skating, uh, and uh, hiking also with skis. Uh, Amazing. 
I live in such a beautiful region. There are all the mountains. Chamonix uh, is only uh, mm-hmm. half an hour from my home, very close to Geneva. Nice. So it seems like you made the correct decision to stop science to do such amazing things like sport and music. But was there a particular reason that you said, you know, I have enough? When I, during my professional life, I think I, I worked uh, too much. <laughs> and uh, I remember every weekend I said, oh, I would be so happy to work my piano and to go cycling. So now uh, I can uh, accomplish all, all of my passions. And I, I keep only an inte- intellectual uh, interest in your science. So uh, I read uh, some uh, basic uh, uh, articles in uh, nature or science, uh, but uh, I totally gave up uh, reading uh, neurology or even movement disorders. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense to me. Um, totally understandable. So, but in your career, um, which had uh, like amazing moments, um, who were defining role models and why? Or what were, what were the turning points? Who stuck out? Who influenced your thinking when you started? I would uh, quote uh, two neurologists. The first one is Yves Agide. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if, if you know uh, Agide uh, from Paris, La Salpetriere. Uh, by the end of my neurologic uh, education, uh, I spent uh, six months in Paris and uh, I was interne in France. It's called uh, uh, interne when you are educated in your specialty uh, with uh, Yves Agide and Francois Lermite. And uh, Yves Agide was really a mentor for me. He taught me all the basic rule of neuropharmacology. At that time, I was involved in pharmacology. I remember my, my first study was with Ivagid on Domperidone to demonstrate that Domperidone could uh, improve the effect of uh, dopamine agonist because uh, it will uh, stop uh, side effects uh, like uh, nausea. So you can increase easily increase uh, the dose of dopamine agonist uh, without side effects. The same as uh, levodopa with uh, peripheral decarboxylase inhibitors because the brain doesn't uh, enter the brain blood barrier. It was my first paper uh, published in uh, in the Lancet. <laughs> with the- oh, wow. Good start. Yeah. And uh, Ivajid uh, told me all the scientific approach of research was really my, my mentor and uh, he insisted always on the pathophysiology of uh, all symptoms you can see. If you don't uh, well understand how the brain works, you, if you don't have a basic study, so even a clinician should be involved in animal studies, in, in, in basic uh, research yeah. to, to better understand what uh, he see on patients and to improve and to make research is very important to have a view on basic research and uh, clinical uh, application. So Ivajid, and the, the, my second mentor was my um, uh, Grenoble uh, neurology uh, head, was Jean Perret. Okay. And uh, Jean Perret was very important for me, for not, not only uh, because he, he taught me general neurology, but uh, mostly how to behave with patients. 
And this is very important. The, the, the way you approach a symptom and you understand the symptom and the way you explain to the patient what you understand and what uh, you want to, to do and to share with himself uh, the, the, the treatment you propose. And also he taught me how to manage a department. He was head of the neurology, the Grenoble neurology department. He has been head for perhaps uh, 20 years and I was his successor in Grenoble was head of the neurology department in Grenoble and after in Geneva. And I think that what Tempere taught me was very important for my complete career. And, uh, you, you know, when you, you are a physician, you added many other duties. Um, first, you are a clinician. And after, uh, if you have an academic career, you make research and teaching. Uh, and after its administration is very important. When you young, when you will be older than fifty, you will see. Okay, um, <laughs> this is very important because nobody uh, teaches you that how to manage a group of in, in Geneva. I think had uh, forty five uh, neurologists in the department. It's a lot, yeah. And uh, you know, when you have a, a lot of uh, physicians. And a lot of people, you have a lot of conflicts. <laughs> so it's very important to, to deal with them. In the interview with Paul Crack, you also mentioned that you were among the first, or it was new at your time before you became head, that you could focus only on movement disorders. Yes. Right? So that specialization, and then you, that enabled you to see a lot of patients, of course. Right, but thanks, thanks to Perry. Okay. Because Perry, even in the 70s or 80s, Uh, 1980, mm. he understood that to make good neurology, you should focus on one part of neurology. And he, he let me develop movement disorders. And uh, in Grenoble, uh, we create a movement disorder clinic. And it was the first movement disorder clinic in France. Okay. Yeah. Before, before Paris. Oh, wow. So, and we have uh, some... Uh, Uh, beds dedicated only to movement disorders and a group of uh, physicians, nurses, uh, psychologists, physiologists dedicated to movement disorders. That's and it was very important for the quality uh, of uh, the neurology we delivered to patients. Makes sense. That is so, so normal today, but it's, it's um, good to hear that it developed at some point. So... Um, Makes a lot of sense. And maybe now let's dive into the main topic of today a bit. So you were potentially the leading or one leading figure um, of really introducing the brain simulation to movement disorders and um, to introduce the modern day DBS, basically. And um, Paul Crack told me that you were behind really systematically analyzing all the effects in a meticulous way and studying, spending like days and nights with patients That's what he said. Um, and of course, together with Alim Louis Benabit, uh, I think you made history um, with uh, the first deep brain simulation success stories of our time. So how did it emerge? How did the, the concept emerge? I uh, should uh, pay tribute to Benabit, mm -hmm. very beginning of uh, deep brain simulation, because Benabit was, I think, the only new neurosurgeon in France in the 70s to perform the classical thalamotomy. Perhaps there was five cases a year about the, this. Uh, it 
was very rare. Uh, after the introduction of uh, levodopa in the 70s, uh, uh, surgery uh, almost disappeared. Mm. But then a bit continued, and there was excellent indication in uh, severe tremor, Parkinson's patients, or patients with other types of tremor, with a severe essential tremor, for example, or some patients with a... Uh, tremor related to uh, multiple sclerosis. Be because um, uh, Benabid is very curious, in one patient was a patient with a MS tremor. You know, before lesioning, before performing the lesion, all neurosurgeons use the stimulation. The uh, aim of this stimulation was to be sure that you do not induce adverse effects Uh, such as uh, paresthesias, uh, motor contraction, which means that you are too close to the pyramidal uh, tract, or, or speech suspensions, speech arrest. It was very important. In the, the, the target was the VIM uh, remotomy. As you know, uh, the tradition was to, to stimulate uh, using 50 hertz. And Benabid used uh, 100 hertz. And many, many frequencies and 100 hertz. And what he saw in uh, an awake patient, the tremor was totally abol abolished. Mm. Uh, so first, he, he, uh, he thought that it was a motor contraction because the patient was a severe tremor. Simulation at 50 hertz, severe tremor. At 100 hertz, no tremor. So it was a motor contraction, and uh, we asked the, the, the patient to uh, move, because I, I was in the OR. Mm -hmm. It was one specialty in the Grenoble surgery, and uh, I think um, Benebid was very open-minded with this, to have a medical neurologist in the OR. <laughs> the tremor stopped without contraction, and the patient was able to move. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was absolutely synchronous with the stimulation, with perhaps uh, one, se one or two second delay. Uh, yeah. So this was uh, the very first discovery. And uh, the second one is to transform an acute effect in a chronic effect. Mm. So uh, Benabid uh, introduced a connecting lead yeah. from, from the definitive lead. He said to the patient, now you go to the neurology department and uh, Pierre will uh, try to reproduce what we see in the OR. Because it was not uh, sure that this was... Uh, was that with an external stimulator or...? Yes, it was an ex external stimulation through a connecting lead uh, in, the, in the parietal area. There was a connecting lead uh, and the, the first patient uh, <laughs> was stimu externally stimulated for three weeks and we was, uh, was afraid of the risk of infection. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, duration of this external uh, stimulation. And uh, we stimulated the patient. So after all, all the work was done in uh, neurology. So the initial idea and demonstration was done by Benabid. Mm -hmm. And after uh, uh, all the determination of the electrical parameters, how it worked, was done in neurology, in the neurology department. And we use a stimulator, which was not per permitted in uh, humans. Okay. And this was... Uh, because Benabid was the head of the research department, the INSERM research department. It was, he made a lot of basic studies in, in rats, in monkeys. And uh, in rats, we used a stimulator. I remember the, the WPY stimulator. And it was possible to stimulate using all the range of frequency from 1 hertz to 
10,000 uh, hertz, all, all the with, uh, with pulse possible. Uh, I don't know if I, if I can say this, but on the, this stimulator, it was written for animal use only. <laughs> okay. well. Was a simulator. Sure, sure. And in the Lancet 1991 paper that you then published, you could really see that you tested all these frequencies, right? In, in I think, four patients at the time, you tested 50 hertz, no effect. Then you see like a U curve, right? And then um, up to very high frequencies, you still see effects. So that showed that at the time, I think, as I understand it now, these stimulation parameters were not at all standardized, right? You, this was terra incognita and you tested all that. So, so I was uh, re involved in this, in this study. I was alone with the patients, with the uh, very first patient. And I, I spent hours, thanks to patients. Really, there was patients. <laughs> yeah. uh, patient, patient. Uh, for them, they were so spectacular. All these first patients had tremor, mm -hmm. um, or tremor-dominant Parkinsonism, or mostly essential tremor and some MS tremor. Mm -hmm. uh, it was so spectacular for patients that most agreed without difficulty to, uh, to try to find the best electrical parameters. So I tried to, take, to maintain constant some parameters and to move one, and after to have a balance between uh, all uh, electrical parameters. And what I saw in uh, the very first patient is that the frequency is crucial. Mm. Nothing, nothing before, below 30, be below 30 or 50 hertz, mm. nothing. Yeah. The benefit be began at 50 hertz and uh, plateaued uh, at 100 or 100. And uh, for, for tremor, some patients... Uh, had this, uh, an increased benefit from 100 to, uh, to 200. Mm. But generally, it was 100, the, the plateau. Yeah. And after I, I uh, studied the uh, pulse width, and uh, it was clear that the uh, narrower pulse width was the, be the, the better. Yeah. And, the, and the voltage, it was only uh, the anatomical uh, diffusion of the, the current so the benefit to risk ratio, benefit to adverse effects ratio uh, was according to the anatomical location of the electrode. So it was possible increasing uh, electrical intensity or voltage uh, to know exactly where was the electrode according to the sensitive path, to the motor part, to the perineal tract and other uh, tracts involved in some symptoms mm -hmm. in the thalamic region. So uh, I, I work with the uh, trials and error, errors with, uh, with patients. And I think that this is now, this has not been done for other indications. True. It has True. been done after for STN, but it was done for VIM after STN and that's all. Mm -hmm. Now there are more than 20 indications. Uh, not uh, not all validated. I think that it, it's a crucial point. So I, I totally I couldn't agree more. And and one thing I think that is missing in this uh, story is that most stimulators, especially in the U.S., were not allowed to go above fifty hertz because apparently there had been some epileptic seizures in surgeries. So that is maybe why it could be that this was not discovered earlier, because as you say, everything below 50 hertz. It, was, it has been discovered by other neurophysiologists. I remember a paper by Denise Albefessar, mm -hmm. who was a neurophysiologist mm -hmm. in Hôpital Foch. 
in the Paris region. And the neurosurgeon was uh, Gérard Guyot. He made a lot of uh, thalamotomy. And she tried, she had, she was also involved in basic uh, research. So, so she used uh, the same type of stimulators with all available frequencies. And uh, she wrote the, the, the beautiful paper that if you use 200 hertz, okay. you stop tremor in patients. Yes. Many years before Benabid. Okay. So the, the idea of Benabid, the second idea, because the first idea had already been discovered by other neurophysiologists. So I think that his main idea was to transform an acute effect discovered only in the OR and, and those had not the idea that it could be therapeutic because there was physiologist, there was not clinician. And Benabid had the idea. Sure to the possibility if the effect was permanent for weeks with the external stimulation, it would be possible to implant stimulators because before movement disorders subspecialty, uh, Benavid was involved in pain and he operated many patients mm-hmm. uh, with pain surgery with implanted stimulators. So he knew that it was possible to have chronic stimulation. So in this very first patient, sure. as uh, in neurology, we demonstrated that the acute effect seen in the OR was maintained over two weeks, two or three weeks. We decided, yeah. with the approval of the patients, of, of course, there was no ethical committee at that time, <laughs> but of course, everything was done with the approval of uh, well-informed patients. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we decided to implant it the stimulator and the, the first stimulator was exactly the same that was used in pain surgery. Amazing. And that was pain for the um, spinal cord stimulation? Or well, spinal cord, but also, also in the thalamus, but uh, more posteriorly. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Wow. And th- th- that's why the utmost uh, frequency available in this ITRAL-1 stimulator was 130 hertz. Ah, and that stuck, right? That's what I heard. Yeah. So... If it was a 100 hertz, uh, the classical parameters were, uh, would have been 100, it would be 150, it would be 150 hertz. So that upper limit was 130 hertz. Amazing. That, that, and that's still used today. So, so that is... Um, the narrowest <laughs> pulse width was 60 microseconds. So that's why the parameters, because of the... Pain stimulator first used in the in the patients. Which stimulator was that? Itrel, I T R E L one. Itrel one. Metronic is metronic. Right? Yes, it was metronic. Wow, and um, that that brings me to to a related question. You know, I think in our field, technology has always shaped what we can do and what is possible, and what also has shaped what concepts can be tested. So I think this anecdote is the best example for that, or one of the best examples. Do you, do you see other things where technology shaped the way we did uh, deep brain simulations in your time or even now? The precision of the targeting mm. was crucial. True. Uh, I was very confident because I think that uh, Benavid is really an excellent neurosurgeon. He controlled everything uh, and we knew... Uh, with less than one millimeter precision, the three di and D uh, were the electrode walls. That, that's why what we saw in the OR was reproduced after, because 
the the uh, the permanent electrode was introduced exactly in the same place mm. so and was he say because he used ventriculography at that time uh, sure. with a superimposition and it was such a precision amazing so i, I was I, i was sure when when the patients entered the neurology department i was sure that we, it was possible to reproduce exactly what we saw in the or mm. so I, I, the way I picture it is, uh, is somehow you sitting with the patient testing with the externalized amplifier and you already know this is possible. We can stop tremor with the push of a button. Um, how was the feeling then? Because that was real new world, right? So how did it feel like? I have not a memory of a, dead, of a great discovery, but only of, of a small improvement that it was possible to replace a permanent lesion by uh, permanent stimulation with the advantage of adjustment to, so we can control the adverse effects. There was adverse effects. Uh, you know, I tested all the electrical parameters. So when increased voltage, of course, created uh, adverse, we, adverse effects. And um, what was very important also, it's to have in our brain, the anatomy of the region, the precise uh, anatomy to understand uh, what occurred in patients and to know what we can expect as side effects. Uh, not only paresthesias, of course, it was more too posterior, uh, motor contraction, too lateral, speech arrest, it's not well known where, <laughs> where it is, but there was a lot of... Um, of adverse effects and uh, what we expected is to have first tremor rest and after uh, when we increase voltage the the the, the appearance of uh, adverse effects so but it, it was exactly according to the precision of the targeting if the target is exactly in the in the 10 so you will first have tremor suppression without side effects. But if we increase, of course, uh, there, there's a volume. That's why uh, I made a parallel between voltage and anatomical spreading of current. Then after VIM-DBS, you started or you moved on to subthalamic nucleus DBS. And I think that may have started because of Haggai Bergman's uh, paper that, you know, before, as far as I understood it, people were afraid of the subthalamic nucleus because of hemibolism. And then in, in the MPTP monkey, it was shown that stimulation of the SDN can be helpful for Parkinson's. And um, then you again, like the Grenoble team, as far as I know, were also the first to, to test this. And I heard that Patricia Limousin might, might have been the, the person to, to switch on the bilateral STN. Um, and uh, I would love to talk with her as well later in the show, but can you maybe share some memories of that time? Um, Paul Crack said she came into the room and says, patient can walk again. And um, that, of course, and, and then first nobody believed it, but um, apparently bilateral STN was another breakthrough done in Grenoble. Yes, it was really the breakthrough. <laughs> uh, I remember very well, I can tell you the... The, the story. Um, I was in an outpatient clinic in my uh, office, and suddenly Patricia bursted into my office. I was not accustomed 
with this uh, behavior because she is uh, personality is a um, little bit shy huh? and she didn't uh, say hello to the patients and Pierre, 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 come. Uh, I thought that as the head of the neurology department that there was somebody dead and there was an uh, emergency something. And I was in the other office and there was the first patient bilaterally uh, stimulated in the STN. Uh, in this patient, it was patient number three, uh, we hoped, we, all the, the uh, three first patients was operated unilaterally because we expected that unilateral STN could uh, be sufficient to improve Parkinsonism. But this was not, uh, not true because our very first patients had severe kinesia and rigidity, very severe. And, and I remember the, 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 this uh, first bilaterally operated um, patient uh, told me, oh, after the first unilateral STN simulation, oh, it's good, your, your um, operation. Uh, before, I was uh, tetraplegic. Now, I'm hemiplegic. So, in these severe patients, we decided to bilaterally um, operate. Patricia was the first to stimulate bilaterally this patient. So, I entered the office and I saw a patient, a normal patient, walking normally. And oh, I said, uh, he's on levodopa. She said, no, 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 no levodopa. Oh, so you injected apomorphine. She said, no, absolutely no drug. She said, try. So I stopped the stimulators. And within a few seconds, two, three seconds, he returned to severe Parkinsonism, unable to walk and totally ekanetic. I switched back uh, on the, the simulators and immediately normal. All my professional life uh, can be uh, abstract with this uh, patient suddenly cured from Parkinsonism. That must have felt uh, amazing. And I hear that these very first patients, they were followed for a very long time and all the stories are there and one could even write a book about the single cases somehow because at the time, well, Craig said every patient was an experiment. In STN, uh, we did exactly the, the same work as for, for tremor patient, mm. the VIM uh, thalamus. And, and we demonstrated that the frequency was important, but with slightly less higher frequencies. 100 was sufficient, uh, generally. We, uh, but in tremor patients, some patients were better with the higher frequencies, not in the STM. And, and we used also, it was the ITRAL2 uh, stimulator. Uh, also, you know, the, the first stimulator made by Medtronic dedicated to movement disorder patients was perhaps um, 10 years after the beginning of DBS in movement disorders. The first simulators were only developed for pain. But that one still had 130 hertz limit or the itral one? The itral two also, uh, 130. And after four tremor, we asked to increase the possibility and Medtronic developed stimulator with the upper limit at 185, but uh, useless in uh, STN generally. But the narrowest pulse was also 60 microseconds and they didn't develop uh, 30. We asked because we demonstrated that 30, 40 
was very effective and uh, it was not available in the very first uh, simulator. That's, that's amazing because I, I think that really was introduced just a few years ago by, you know, Boston Scientific and, and also Medtronic with the flashed hard drive. So I, I still remember, but you had shown it back in the 80s. So You know, if you study very well the patients, if you know this patient perfectly for years, you know all these symptoms and you reproduce this many times. The reproducibility is very important. So if you work in a scientific manner with reproducibility and you are sure you need only one patient, N equal one, to demonstrate that it works. Sure. Uh, a patient is like this, stimulators on, no tremor. Hmm. You don't need a lot of patients. Uh, sure. After, if it doesn't work in other patients, we have to understand why, the reason. But uh, if you mastered all the condition of the, the anatomy, the physiology, uh, uh, you can reproduce. I, I sometimes think uh, of the same way about even other you know, diseases like depression or so. If you have one patient where Helen Myberg said actually in, uh, in the same podcast that you know, if a battery depletion of a depression patient happens and the patient comes into the emergency unit because uh, you know, that, that is more or less proof because the patient couldn't know it. It's, it can't be placebo, but the simulator turned off and you have one patient where it worked. So, so you played a major part um, in, in this development, but of course you were a team. So how was the interdisciplinary collaboration in Grenoble like? What was the relationship maybe with um, Alim Louis Benabit and also who were other important figures we've talked about or mentioned already, Paul Crack and Patricia Limousin. Can you talk a bit about that? I think that the team approach was the major reason for the success of the Grenoble mm -hmm. um, team. Uh, Benabid, he launched ideas. Every minute, a new idea is incredibly intelligent and creative. But after... All is the ideas for the neurologist. So we have to, to pick some ideas and to transform these ideas in scientific medical facts. The second quality of Benabid is the, as a neurosurgeon. He is really an excellent neurosurgeon and all the electrode was perfectly inserted. After the neurosurgeon, I think that uh, the neurophysiologist in the OR also was important, was Benabid has also some competence in neurophysiology. And uh, Amid Benazouz was also very uh, important in the OR only. And also important because he was responsible for the red studies. Because before the first uh, human implanted in the STN was many, many rats and monkeys. And Amid Benazouz was uh, the neurophysiologist involved in this basic research, very important for the translation between uh, for, from animals to humans and for the success in humans. In the neurological team, there was many neurologists because after the success of, the, of DBS in uh, tremor treatments, I had many fellows from all the world. Uh, and I really, I was very lucky with this. And all these fellows were incredible, good and intelligent neurologists. For Tremor, there was um, Claire-Lise Gervason. Uh, she did not make an, an academic career after. And after uh, Claire-Lise, uh, uh, Patricia Limousin, really uh, 
the most important collaborator. And now you know she is a professor of neurology at uh, Queen Square. Paul Craig was a fellow for, he has been for one year and after he came back to, to, to Grenoble and many, many, Elena Moreau from uh, Milano. And there was many uh, from uh, Spain and from really all, all countries, even from the States. So I had a great, great chance because all these demonstration of effects were time-consuming. And if I was alone with the tremor patients, in SCN patients, we operated the second or the third year, the 50 patients a year. So it was very, very important to, to have a big data, a database. And uh, more importantly, neurosurgeons, neurophysiologists in the OR, basic neurophysiologists, uh, neuro, neurologists, it was important to have neuropsychologists because ethically I was afraid to stimulate the brain chronically. So, so many uh, possible adverse effects. So from the very first patients, I asked the neuro, neuropsychologist Claire Hardouin to uh, deeply study all the, uh, the cognitive, the emotional, and the behavioral aspect of all patients. So she, she spent also hours with patients to know them before surgery and after surgery. Because we were afraid that it could be some personality changes. So the, the psychologist and Claire Hardouin, I think that without Claire Hardouin, it would not be such a great success uh, and the control, the, the mastering of all the effect of DBS and the correct management of patients. And the, the other parts of, uh, of the team were neurophysiologists. It was important, especially in dystonia, uh, in GPI targets, and also in uh, STN and severely kinetic patients. And... Uh, all the team of movement disorders, the nurses, we had at that time nurses specialized in Parkinson's disease. Because as I told you, my second mentor, Jean Perret, we uh, let me the opportunity to uh, develop this movement disorder unit. So the, the team approach was uh, mandatory for the success and of the if, if we see this in retrospect now from a modern day um, I think the common perception is that in Grenoble you started something like modern day deep brain simulation um, but the concept of of course brain simulation is much older and may even date back to Robert Heath or Jose Delgado in the 50s um, in the US so were these early pioneers an inspiration to the Grenoble team or was it a completely like new rediscovery or what, what was also what was crucially different? We have already uh, spoken of, uh, mm. of this. Uh, I mentioned Albe, Denise Albe-Fessard. Of course, there was many, many page, uh, papers True. and uh, mm. some American uh, neurosurgeons stimulated everything in the brain. Mm. But all these studies were uncontrolled. There was in the short term and uh, it was done more in a physiological uh, aim than uh, a therapeutical aim. So the, the spirit was, was the different. So it's exactly what we discussed. The merit of our team uh, was to transform an acute physiological effect in the OR in a therapeutical effect. Makes sense, yeah. That, so so that, that, that became clear to me um, that, you know, the transformation to make this permanent or this effect permanent, that is... Uh, so 
maybe uh, before we wrap up, um, beyond what we already talked about um, and the breakthroughs we've already mentioned, would you have a particular story of maybe academic or clinical success or, or surprise that you would like to share? There was many, but I think that Paul Crack mentioned you this story of a patient and we tried to increase her voltage and he began to laugh and, and to have a lot of ideas. And at that time, I understood, oh, in the STN, there are the three compartments, the motor, the associative, and uh, the limbic part. And we can, according to the uh, placement, the location of, of the tip of the electrode and the voltage, so uh, according to the volume of uh, stimulated tissue, we can influence each part of this uh, STN. And mm -hmm. this was also reversible. It was incredible. Uh, make, uh, when it was uh, stimulated with a voltage slightly higher than was was necessary to uh, improve uh, echinacea, uh, he began to make uh, jokes and to and to laugh and to have a lot of ideas and to be very vivid and it was incredible and reversible, reversible uh, on demand according to the voltage. Would you think that the STN could be a depression target? Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. An excellence. I, I think so too, personally. It hasn't been explored much, I think. We should know exactly where are the electrodes uh, uh, for mood. Uh, you know, the, um, we see, it works in... in, uh, in uh, Schleffer? Oh, yes, Schleffer. Yes, <laughs> so the, he stimulated in the VTA or something, but... I wonder it was not... Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, it was very, very close. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, it's true. It's, it's very close. You can't rule out... Um, uh, yeah, that's true. So, um, since we talked about successes a lot, um, would you also be able to share a story where things went wrong or it just didn't work out as planned or you thought this was a complete waste of my time? Yes, I was, I was afraid of the possibility of a loss of benefit because in some tremor patients, it was in the... 80s, 88, uh, I knew patients who progressively lost the benefits on tremor. So I increased voltage, uh, new benefits. And after a couple of weeks, tremor occurred. I increased voltage. And I, I remember in one patient, I increased up to 8 volts. And what occurred, it was the addiction process. The rebound effect when we decreased, and it was not possible in this in this patient to stop stimulation. So I, I was afraid that uh, this could be the this could occur in many patients, and in fact, it occurred in few patients. And I think perhaps because the location of the electrode was not exactly where it could be. It's, it's a it's a supposition. Uh, I'm not sure of this, of the reason why. And uh, Mawanaris described patients arriving in the emergency ward with this rebound, rebound and extraordinary tremor. Uh, um, and of course, in the STN, it could have been the rebound of severe echinacea, more severe than the basic echinacea. Of course, this did not occur. But I was really uh, frightened by this possibility of philosophy. And it's a mystery 
why this did not occur? Because there, there is the, the physiology of the, of the brain and of the, the canon process in, for all the vegetative system showed us that uh, the body accustomed to everything, but not the brain to stimulation is uh, uh, incredibly lucky for this. The logic would be a progressive loss of benefits. <laughs> and I, in the BAM, we have that, um, of course, as well today, that uh, if you turn it off, you have a rebound effect. But I can only imagine. So nowadays, we just know that, you know, and then we know that after two days or so, or, or a day, it's better. But you didn't know that, right? Because you were the first. So um, I can only imagine how, how frightening this could have been. Don't increase voltage to I. Don't be yeah. yeah. modest with the electrical parameters. Exactly. It's like for drugs, not use too high those. So, so to wrap up, uh, based on your like vast experience, how do you perceive the field of neuromodulation? What can we learn from the early days for the future? And what should a young generation um, of today know or maybe not forget from the earlier days? My concern is that uh, most uh, uh, groups trying to demonstrate that DBS could be effective in other location and, or locations in the brain and other indication of the diseases based their studies on the electrical parameters discovered for, discovered for tremor and uh, and echinacea. All this basic research we did is not reproduced now with new targets. And um, for example, we thought that the mechanism of high frequency stimulation was to, to jam the message and to avoid a wrong message. So an inhibitory effect, a global inhibitory effect. Of course, it's stimulation, but uh, globally it uh, mimics um, inhibition. But not in all targets, in the PPN, uh, low frequency was better than high frequency, 10, 20 hertz, for, for example. So my concern is to uh, stimulate the brain in the right way. It's to uh, uh, stimulate using a, a significant electrical message. And this is not for, for tomorrow. It will be very difficult to mimic the normal brain functioning because the uh, neuron, neuronal discharges are so complicated that to mimic a normal message would be very, very difficult. But I think it could be the, 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 the future um, to, to inject a significant uh, signal. So with a closed loop uh, stimulation in the STN, in the beginning of uh, well, what I'm uh, saying, it's to, uh, uh, to understand what is the, the wrong electrophysiology and uh, to stimulate exactly when this wrong electrophysiology occurs, but uh, it's, it's too simple. So for, for the future, it's really um, uh, the injection of normal neurophysiology because high frequency stimulation is, is very uh, silly. It's uh, only to, to, to avoid the wrong message. and uh, Somehow even have to inject information. I don't, that needs to be meaningful. So it might not even be enough what you're saying to inject physiologically mimicked signals, but probably the brain even needs something meaningful. <laughs> so I think there's, there's, a, there's a long way to go. But yes, yeah. I would say uh, one point to, to add. 
which is not discussed uh, generally in the, in the paper. It's the D of deep, deep brain stimulation. Why deep? Why does it work when it is deep and it doesn't work well when it is cortical or superficial? And this is true with many, many uh, targets and new targets and new indications. I think because as we know, as far as we know, the, on the functioning of uh, the brain networks, uh, all the brain ne networks are anatomically like a, a funnel, a funnel. So the deeper you are, the greater uh, network you can impact. An effect even on, on, a, on a small part and the uh, stimulation is only uh, expect to influence uh, two, three millimeters uh, about uh, a small sphere, uh, uh, two or three millimeters in diameter, that's all. Um, and uh, if you influence such a small part, if you want to have an effect on a complete network, you should be deep. And I think that's why all the trials on cortical stimulation and now on TMS are not very effective. They, they, they have some effect, but not great effects. And if you introduce an electrode in the brain, there is a risk, uh, two or 3% hemorrhage infection. And to justify such a great risk, huge risk in comparison with pharmacology, it's incredible. Uh, you should have a great effect, benefits, a great beneficial effects. Uh, that's why uh, I think uh, the anatomy, the, the anatomy of the brain, pathophysiology, should be uh, the basic um, uh, reasoning of all neurologists and all, always based on on the basic research. Great, great. So, so the the, the SDNs to me sometimes seems to be a miniature of the whole frontal cortex because it receives input of the whole frontal cortex. So, so that is, I, I think, um, what you're referring to, right? By stimulating a small part, you can have an impact of a large network and that, that is hard to, to do in, on the cortex. You would need a, a very large electrode or something. Yeah. Yes. And many, many parts um, because of the network. <laughs> Everywhere in the, in the brain, and the, all parts of, brain, of the brain are useful. <laughs> You're right. Okay, thank you so much once more uh, for participating. Um, this was a great honor and uh, I think you really could give us a, a, a beautiful insight into the early days and the, the, the magic in that time in, in Grenoble. And um, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't thank you more. It was my pleasure and I, I, I'm sorry for my uh, poor English ah, and, no. uh, and some problem because I, I think uh, now it's almost five years I have not discussed about the brain and DBS. <laughs> oh, I would discuss uh, uh, about music far better <laughs> than neurology. <laughs> so sorry for that to, to search my words and I'm sorry for this. You, I think you were amazingly um, into it. So maybe you can consider coming back to the field. We would be glad <laughs> to welcome you. Thank you. Thank you so much.